Last Sunday, I included in the message a little snippet of a story about a man named Jed. You remember Jed? Most of you remember Jed. Some of you remember when Jed was new on the block, and some of you remember watching Jed on reruns. But we know about Jed. He was the man who worked all day to keep his family fed. And he was shooting at some food. Up from the ground came a bubbling crude, right? All the sudden, oil that is, Texas tea, you know. I've been to Texas. They don't drink oil, so it's not really tea that they drink out there. They don't put sugar in it, which is odd because it's the South, but, you know, whatever. But here's the thing about Jed Clampett. You remember what happened, and we talked a little bit about this last week. Jed Clampett all of a sudden found himself sitting on tons of money. And in finding himself sitting on tons of money, he decided we're moving from the Ozarks. We're going to move out to Beverly Hills. And so they bought the mansion and they established the bank accounts. But the thing is, they remained the Clampets. I believe that most Christians in America remain the Clampets even though they have been bought for something greater. I'm not saying that they continue to be bumbling rednecks. I'm one of those guys. I'm from South Georgia. You can't get away from that. But here's what happens. We as followers of Christ have been given an eternal victory. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, but we're still running around like Ellie Mae Clampett as though we live in the Ozarks and have not been changed. And therefore the world looks at us with the derisive view of this gospel that we claim to have power, but they see no evidence therein. And church, I believe this morning that we're going to talk about a word that is the hardest word for church people to talk about, and that is the word change. That is the word change. That is the word change. And I'm not talking about these couple of pennies that I have in my pocket here. I'm talking about the transformation change of your life and my life because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's look together in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 today, we're going to start in verse 25. And if you have your place uh, on your tablet, on your phone, or in, in an actual you know, bound paper book, let me invite you to stand with me if you're able as we read verse 24 to 31 together. Therefore, putting away falsehood, speak the truth, each one, to his neighbor, because we're members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he has to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You are sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you looked into the emptiness of our heart, the emptiness of our life, and you offered us hope and peace. You transformed us because 
of your good pleasure, because of your good will, that we could see the power of Christ made manifest. That we could be redeemed because you called us your own children. Help us to live in light of our new status in you. God, we love you and we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Change. Change. Why change? Well, all of us have had to adapt to a lot of change in our lives, correct? Nobody has to pick, nobody picks up the phone and asks to be connected to someone else. Most of you can, some of you can remember, I say most, some of you can remember the day when you could only dial seven digits and call somebody in Atlanta, right? A lot of you can remember when you used to only dial the last four, right? And then they added that fifth one. And then they went to seven and now you can do 10. And, and, and a lot of you can remember the way that communication used to happen. You actually had to handwrite a letter to someone. And you actually had to lick the envelope and lick the stamp and you had to put it in the mail and, and it had to wait. You had to wait like a week for them to get it even if it was just going across town, right? A lot of you can remember the days when you had to turn it to a certain channel on your television to find out what was going to come on and you had to wait for it to scroll. And if you wanted to know what was going to come on channel five and you put it on the guide channel and it was on channel seven, you knew it was going to be at least eight minutes before it got back to channel five because you had to watch the whole thing scroll. There was no just push button. A lot of you, some of you, many of you remember, remember when Interstate 85 wasn't there. Some people remember this, but things have changed, right? A lot of things have changed. A lot of you remember when you were able, when you were able to sit out on your front porch and talk with your neighbors and enjoy community, but then these garage doors and microwaves started showing up in people's homes and nobody stayed outside anymore. And because nobody stayed outside anymore, we started to where we didn't trust one another because society changes, right? We are all accustomed to change, but when it comes to the gospel and the change of our lives, a lot of times inside these walls where the transformation should be the most evident, it becomes the most difficult. And Paul knows that. And Paul gives us reasons and how this change Reasons for the change and how the change must occur. So let's just start with the reasons. Why change? Why change? Look at what he says in verse 25. Therefore, putting away lying or falsehood, speak the truth each one to his neighbor because we are members of one another. I love that he puts this membership to one another in perspective here. That it's not just my family, it's not just my clan that gets in my van and goes to my house. It is all of us together when we came to faith in Christ. Reason number one we, we, that we are to change is because we have surrendered ourselves to Christ. All of this is about being in the body, being in fellowship with one another because of the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. 
He says there, because we are members of one another. Now, I'm looking across the congregation this morning, and I, and I apologize. I do not know everybody's name. I am trying still to pick up names and figure out names and remember names. I was having a, yesterday we were at the Christian City for Miss Mary Nell's service, and, and somebody that, that's, that's here, um, maybe not here right now, but is normally here, came up and started talking to me, and the whole time I'm going, name, 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 and in my mind, and I was thinking it's going to be so embarrassing and possibly offended if I say, could you just please remind me your name, because I'm supposed to know it. So maybe we need name tags for everybody, <laughs> so we can remember. It's kind of hard to get to know somebody when you don't know their name, right? kind of hard to trust somebody when you don't really know them. It's hard to get to know them if we have not submitted ourselves to one another because we have submitted ourselves to Christ. We become members of one another because of our mutual submission to Jesus Christ. Remember, this is all a victory passage. This is, he, Paul's running the victory lap for us right now. Chapter four, verse eight up there, it says, he ascended on high, took the captives captive, he gave gifts to people. Who? Jesus. This is how God blessed us with every spiritual blessing. This is about victory. And because of victory, we have this commonality between us in Christ Jesus under the blood that was shed for us and under the cross of Christ that we have surrendered ourselves, therefore, to one another. So by necessity, we must change. See, I love that Paul later, we'll kind of skip down a little bit in chapter five, he talks about the husbands and the wives, but he relates it all to the mystery of Christ and his church. Now, all you men out there know that when you got married, you had to change some things, right? And, and women are really good at changing us without us even knowing it. Making those subtle comments and shifts in our lives without us actually remembering. I heard a comedian say one time, he was talking about he and his wife and how after they'd been married for about 20 years, they were, they were laying in the bed one night watching TV. And he said, you know, and she's sitting there and she says, man, I'm hot. And she just goes on and just, it's burning up in here. And she doesn't say anything else other than that. Just the one comment. He said, and then I got up. And I walked to the thermostat and I turned it down and turned the fan. Now he said, I wasn't the one that was hot. Changes start happening. And you better believe if you want your marriage to succeed that both of you've got to have a little give and a little give and a little give and a lot of give because the relationship is different. And when we come to faith in Christ and come together, there is a lot of give that we have to, that we have to undergo because of what God gave for us in Christ Jesus. But we're not just talking about that we give on preferences. We have to give on who we are as people because we're surrendered to Christ Jesus. But then in verse 30, he gives us another reason. Why change? Look with me at verse 30. I know, I know this is out of normal for me. I usually go straight down the line. I don't bounce around. And, and, and some of you that know me well are, try, are starting to try to wonder, why did you leave verse 32 out? That's connected to this passage. Don't worry, we'll get there next week, all right? So here we go. Verse 30, it says this. Don't grieve God's Holy Spirit, for you were sealed by him for the day of redemption. The second reason we must change is because we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. He has sealed us. He has secured us. He has locked us in. He has placed upon us the royal stamp of God. Therefore, we are marked as being 
different. Marked as being different. If you're in Christ Jesus, if you have professed to know him, if you have professed to be saved, to come to him by faith, you are marked as different. Remember we talked last week about don't walk as the Gentiles walk, don't live as society lives. Why? Because you're marked different. You're marked with a completely different way of life. I remember my youth pastor telling us one time, my youth pastor, um, he kind of looks like, if you've ever seen the Home Alone movies, he kind of looks like uh, Marv, the taller bearded bandit, not the Joe Pesci character, the other guy. He looks like that guy. And so he was a missionary in Argentina for about four and a half years through the International Mission Board. And here's the cool thing that he would tell us. He said, people in Argentina, they, they, look, they look just like North American uh, people. They, they, don't, they don't look, you know, you can see people that are from, from Central, America and some parts of South America and there, they, there is a different appearance physically. He said, people in Argentina, uh, they, they look exactly like us. He said, I can't tell you the number of times I'd be standing on the street as I'm still trying to learn Spanish and an Argentinian man would come up to me and start talking to me and I might look like him, but I have no idea what he's saying to me. We might have the same flesh and blood as the people around us, but because we've been marked as different, the language should be a little bit of a barrier. There's a difference because we've marked. But look at what it starts, verse 25. He says, therefore, therefore. In the context of all this, therefore, because we are supposed to be, uh, t- because we're supposed to live different in the world behind, beside us, therefore, chapter four, verse one, because we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've been called, therefore, chapter one, verse three, because we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing as the adopted children of God through Christ, we must be different. Change is necessary. Why change? because of Christ and because of the Holy Spirit. But what does it even look like? What, what, what does the change even look like? How should this difference be made visible in our lives? Is it, is it a physical appearance? Is it like, okay, we come to Christ and all of a sudden now we all have like suits and ties and we all stand up with perfect posture. Y'all know that perfect posture is what we get, right? Because I stand with it. Y'all look at me like I'm standing funny. This is... This is like good posture, right? I don't stand like that. I, I lose three inches because I don't stand up straight. I'm, I'm, I'm taller than y'all think I am. I just don't, you know, I just don't do that. It's not a physical thing. It, it's, it's, not, it's not a crew cut. It's not perfectly permed hair or whatever you ladies do to your hair. I, I don't even know. There's so many... I love going to Walmart and seeing the hair product aisles. You have like four rows for like women and like half of a section for men on two shelves. It's either like scented shampoo or not scented shampoo. That's pretty much it. Unless you're one of those guys that puts gel in your hair. Then you go to the, lo- the ladies rows over here. Um, I don't have to worry about that. My, my hair just, it doesn't stick up. It doesn't lay down. It just does this. So, but, but it's not a physical thing. It's not about your hair. It's not about your clothes. It's internal. It is a transformation on the inside. And Paul shows us, I believe in this passage, five ways that it is evidence. I know we went through some of this last week because we started looking at how we were supposed to change what we do and how we do and and what that change will look like. But we're gonna go in depth a little bit based on what Paul says in verse 25 through 31 about this change and how it looks. And he starts off with our motives. Look at what he says. Therefore, putting away 
falsehood. Speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. And, and I know you're sitting there thinking, Evan, that, that doesn't say anything about motive. That just says tell the truth. Absolutely, it says tell the truth. What's your motive for telling the truth? Maybe the other question we need to ask, what's your motive for not speaking fully true statements? We have a knack for slightly, maybe a little bit more than slightly, skewing the truth. I think we learn it as kids. Because kids don't want to get in trouble, right? If you had a parent that spanked, you knew what you had to, you, you learned pretty quick by the time you were six, seven years old, what to say or not to say in order to avoid the spanking, right? Because you didn't want that. If you had a parent that did time out or took uh, TV, electronics, whatever restriction, you, you kind of learned how to work the system, right? So, so we started learning at an early age how to skew the truth because our motive was fear. The reason you and I oftentimes struggle with being truthful in everything, straight up and down, telling the truth, is because we have some sort of a fear among us. We're afraid of not just getting in trouble, we're afraid of disappointing someone. And you think, oh man, really? Is that where we're going to go? Okay, some of you have trouble telling someone no. Somebody comes to you and asks, hey, can you help out with this? Can you do this? And in your mind, you're thinking, I've got 276,000 things I have to do between now and Tuesday, but I don't want you to be disappointed in me, so I'm going to go along with it and say, yeah, I can handle that. Knowing full well you can't. What was your fear? It was a fear of man. You didn't want to disappoint somebody. Men, we're really good at this because, you know, men, we, we, men are fixers by nature. Uh, we, we, see, we see a problem, we want to fix it. And whether we know how to swing a hammer or not, it was really funny. We were meeting with a church planner this week over in Kirkwood. And they do some construction things uh, there in, in their community and, and trying to help build the neighborhood. And, and, and there's some strong, there's deep poverty and, and, and affluence in Kirkwood that are just colliding together. And so they're trying to pull the community in cool ways. And, and the question came up to, to Justin, who is the church planner, says, so, so are you pretty good with a hammer? And he said, no, I've got an oil painting degree. I can't do any of this stuff, you know. But men, by nature, what we want to do is say, oh, yeah, I can fix that. I can handle that. I can do that because there's this bravado of manhood that we want to exude and exhibit and we don't want people to think, well, you're not man enough if you don't know how to change the oil on your car or put the fluid in the washer, windshield washers on your, you're, you're, we, we've got this, it's a fear thing. And so we step out with this motive of approving, of, of approval and fear-based um, acceptance that Paul says, just, just speak the truth. Don't, don't live in fear. Why? Because we're members of one another. We're in Christ. There is no reason to fear. Fear God, not man. Fear of man is one of the greatest deterrents in American society to our ability to grow spiritually because we want to be accepted. And social media just feeds that. Church life feeds that. I'm convinced that the place where we should be the most vulnerable and the most bro allowed to be broken is in the church. But too often we put on our Sunday best 
And I'm not talking about ties and hats and dresses. I'm talking about that mask that we put on and we go up to somebody and say, hey, brother, how are you doing? I'm doing great, but inside we are falling apart because we're afraid that in the church that we might not be accepted because we're messed up. But Jesus reached into your messed up and reached into my messed up and said, I'm the one that can fix it and I'm gonna put you in this body, this group of members so that you can speak truthfully to one another with a pure motive of the holiness and righteousness of God so that there's no judgment, there's no condemnation, there's only love, acceptance and pushing towards holiness. Sometimes we put on that mask because we don't wanna be pushed towards holiness. We come to church and we want people to think that we're okay, that we're more spiritual than we really are because really we just got comfortable living as the world lives. And Paul says, stop, speak the truth because we're members of one another. Your spiritual growth affects me. My spiritual growth affects you because we are together. We must have a pure motive of holiness and love together. But he goes on. He doesn't stop there. He says in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Now he's starting to address our emotions. He's starting to address our emotions. They have to change a little bit too. Hang on a second. Didn't I hear somewhere that you can't help who you love, you can't help who you do this, and you can't control your emotions, right? That's what you're told, right? Feel how you feel, express it, man. Just live with it, grab hold, take life by the horns. You know, that's, that's what we're commanded by society. But what Paul says here is, no, no, you can have emotions, just don't let them rule you. Because the world lets emotions rule them. They don't have it bound to truth. But Paul says here, be angry and do not sin. That's right. He commanded you to be angry and do not sin. And I'm like, well, I'm not supposed to get angry. No, that, that, no, just don't let the anger be what's in control. Don't let the anger be what steps between you and the love of God for your brother or sister in Christ. See, here's the reason anger comes up in this context. This is why Paul singles out anger because he knows that anger has a way to seep itself into your heart and express itself in a way to where you are willing and able to deny the image bearerness of someone else. What I mean by that is you can look at someone and no longer see them as one who bears the image of God, but one who bears the image of your anger. And you lash out against that person, but they're made in the image of God just like you're made in the image of God. And they are redeemable just like you're redeemable because God loves them just like God loves you. We don't see people as people. We see people as objects in our way. And when they get in our way, when they don't respond to us or they're not manipulated by us the way that we think they should, we become angry. We become angry. And you know what? We see this with kids. We, we, we see it with kids. I'm, t- I'm talking about like little kids, like one-year-olds. And this is why we have to start looking at this in its very core of what Paul is showing here. Go look at a one-year-old playing with a toy. You know those shape sort of toys, the ones where you have like a star and a heart and a circle and a triangle and a square or something, and you got to put it in the right hole. 
Go watch a one-year-old playing with that toy and is not able to put something in the right hole. They're trying to stick that heart in the circle. They're taking the triangle and trying to put it in the star. And they're getting angry and frustrated and they are allowing that anger and they go, right? Fast forward 35, 40, 50 years. When that square peg of a person won't fit into that round hole that you're trying to force them in and you become angry. And in your anger, you sin against them. And that anger spews out because you cannot manipulate and control them like a child trying to put something into a shape sorter. And it happens in the church. Because we are fed by a society that consistently tells us to love things and use people. But things weren't made in the image of God. You and I were. And he says here, be angry and do not sin. So somebody's going to offend you. Somebody's going to upset you. Let the anger happen, but don't be controlled by it. Resolve it. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil an opportunity. Resolve it. That's why Jesus says, hey, if you're at the church and you're giving your offering and you realize your brother's got something against you, go resolve that so you're not offering something in vain. Why? Because we're members of one another. Because we're members of one another. It's like having an awkward family fight at the Thanksgiving table. Nobody wants to finish their meal. They, they want to get up and go. It's like the, it's like the, proverbial, uh, the, the proverbial story of, of, of the girl that brings, um, brings home the boy for, for family dinner and dad doesn't like the boy so he makes a scene. And it's awkward and nobody wants to be at that table. Yet, yet we enjoin ourselves and call upon this same holy God with this anger between us sometimes in our own home because I, I've seen inside your car not, not so much that I know how many Chick-fil-A and Burger King cups you have in your car or anything like that uh, but I've seen inside your car especially if you have kids the whole way to church is an argument and a fuss and a fight about who's touching who and who's doing this and who's in it. And, uh, uh, close your mouth, shut up. I'm gonna pop you when we get there. I'm gonna pull this car, but don't make me count to three. All, all the things, you know, your mama might've had a fly swatter. She's reaching back there and swatting you in the back seat. All those great things that take place and happen, right? Then you get to church. Hey, how are you? Let's go praise Jesus. You got, your, you got your quarter for the offering plate and everything's cool. But all the while there's this anger that's under there because... Somebody didn't fit that peg hole that we were trying to use. Paul says, just be, be, you, you can be angry. Jesus was angry. <laughs> True story. In my last church, I was in a deacon's meeting and, and something came up about um, the way a situation was handled and, um, and I, I defended the staff member in question in the deacon's meeting and everything. And, and one of the deacons kind of took a side shot um, at me and at the staff member. And, 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 I, and I, I retorted, um, biblically retorted. And, and this guy looked me in the eye and said, you need to be more like Jesus. I said, okay, I will. You remember that time Jesus went into the temple and brandished a whip and kicked over tables and drove everybody out? Ended the conversation. Uh, that was not a good example because that was anger with sin. And that's what we do. I'm there. I've done it. Paul says that the change has happened in our emotions, in, in, in the way we love one another. See, that's the thing. It's an emotion. So it says here in the, in the direct comment, he says, be angry, do not sin. 
If you can command something, that means it's controllable. If he can make a command in Holy Scripture about your anger, therefore about your emotions, that means that it can be controlled. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the change. This is the, the fruit of the Spirit. The one that sealed us gives us the control over self so that we're not controlled by emotion. Then he goes on and says this in verse 28. Let no thief no longer, let no, excuse me, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he has to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. And you think, okay, all right, he's going to tell us not to steal. No, I'm talking about management. Management. See, what happens here is Paul is directing us to how the gospel changes our view of work, our view of uh, personal finances, our view of wealth, and our view of responsibility. And we label all of this under one big church word called stewardship or management. How do we manage what God has placed before us? And he's like, no, no, Evan, you're, you're talking about somebody. He, look, I'm reading it. I'm reading in verse 28. He says it, Evan, right there. Don't steal. Don't let the thief steal anymore. Okay. Why? Because he is to be gainfully employed in such a way that he can be a benefit to someone else in need. That's management. That's managing resources. And what the gospel does is it takes us into a position where we start looking at all that God has entrusted to us. I always wait when I'm doing pre-marriage counseling. The very last session that I have before the wedding is a stewardship session. And we look at the whole thing and just remind everybody that guess, guess who owns everything? God. Every, everything. God doesn't need your money. He already owns it. He's just asking you and me to be responsible. He doesn't need your house. He doesn't need your car. He doesn't need your land. He doesn't need anything. It's already his. We just have to manage it. Why do we manage it? So we can honor God and how we serve one another. And, and what Paul says here about this management is he says, let the thief no longer steal. Now, I don't know that Paul necessarily had uh, collateral and debt and all these things in mind, but it is a shame. It is a shame that on average, Christians carry as much or if not more debt than non-Christians in America. That's living above the means. That's living out of the bounds of management. And the gospel comes to us and changes our heart and says, you know what? If I'm learning contentment, if I'm learning to, to not have this motive of a fear of man and acceptance based on what I have and what I accomplish and what I do, then my view on what I have and what I do is transformed in the way I manage it. Maybe this phrase will ring a bell with you. Blessed to be a blessing. What God has entrusted to you to be used to bless someone else. Look, don't, don't steal, but let him do work so that he can have something to share with someone in need. If you go and start looking at the, the, the greatest growth, the greatest growth trajectory the church in the world has ever known, it comes in the book of Acts. And time and time again, you see a couple of themes uh, just resound throughout the book of Acts. First, 
the power of people that are filled with the Holy Spirit obeying what God has called them to do in Christ Jesus. And second, the commonality of the community. It says time and time again that no one had a need among them because they were all coming together and sharing what they had. They were lifting one another up. That comes back to the motive of fear. Some of us don't want to admit that we're in need, that we're hurting. I, I hear it too often in the church. Let me, let me know how I can help you. Oh, we don't need any help. We got, you just lost everything and you're telling me you don't need any help. What's that like? How can we, no, no, no. We don't want to be a burden. No, no, we've got everything. That's a motive of fear. We don't want to be a fear that we have a need. But the gospel says if we're in proper management of all that we have, we find need, we see need, and we use what we have to meet need. And he goes from there to our mouth. Now, I've had conversations with most of you. I know that I can just skip over this and we can go to the next one because all your mouths are in proper order. So we'll, no? Anybody else's mouth get them in trouble this week? Anybody else's mouth get them in trouble this morning? Ah, me and Tony, good job, Tony. We'll start a support group on this. The mouth. Look at what Paul says. No foul language should come from your mouth. Okay, some of you are thinking, well, I don't cuss, so good. I can check this one off and move on. Y'all carry on with the message and listen to what Evan has to say. I'm good there. Okay, well, look at what else he says. But only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to all who hear. Do your words give grace to all who hear? Maybe we'll just step a, take a degree of separation from the mouth. And we'll, we'll go this route. Maybe you didn't say it out loud, but you had your thumbs involved in it. I wonder how many likes this will get. Oh, they posted that. Let me share this. Let me comment that. Let me say this. Oh, text conversation with my sister. <laughs> Can you believe? Do all your words give someone a picture of the grace of God? Paul says, it's not just about whether or not you said that four-letter word when you stubbed your toe or hit your finger with a hammer. It's about how you used your words to demonstrate grace. And sometimes the way that we use words to demonstrate grace is to actually listen before we say the words to know, is there any hint of superiority? Is there any hint of some sort of, of bias in what I'm about to say? I'm convinced that one of the greatest barriers to racial reconciliation in America today is, the, is, is our own ear and our own tongue. We make comments without thinking, how will this be perceived? We don't filter. We don't filter. We don't think through. You know, if I say this, I'm, I'm not meaning anything by it, but it could be taken that way. Paul says in this passage of scripture, your mouth should have the filter of the Holy Spirit that says it should give the grace of God to all who hear, period. Even if they hear it because it got retweeted, shared, liked, somebody, not just the people you directly spoke to, but all the ones that catch wind of this. Many of you know that I, I'm working on a degree, working is a very loose term there for right now, 
at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. My faculty advisor was a man named Paige Patterson. Paige Patterson was the president of Southwestern Seminary up until about 11 days ago. Paige Patterson, a man that I greatly personally admire, did not consider grace in a lot of his wording when it came to domestic abuse, when it came to a sexual assault, and when it came to the description of a biblical term and used about a younger girl. And because of that, and because of statements that were made five years ago, 20 years ago, and, and through email in the last 20 years, he is now no longer part of our institution. And I'm using this example with you right now for the very purpose of saying that our words carry weight long beyond what when we say them. And there is, a, there is a time that is coming that everything will be brought to light. And if it doesn't catch you now, it will catch you when you stand before God. And he says, you didn't use your words. You didn't use your mouth. You didn't use the tongue that I gave you to demonstrate grace. How, was your, how are your words building one another up? I'm not talking about like being cheesy. Like, hey, brother, let's build you up today. Just demonstrating the power of the gospel in your own tongue, in your own mouth, in the way that we formulate how we share with one another. And then he goes in verse 31 to our heart. And he says, let all bitterness, anger, and wrath Shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. Now, the word heart doesn't appear in that passage. But everything that comes off of the page in verse 31 speaks to the orientation of your heart and my heart. Out of the overflow of the heart does the mouth speak. If you are allowing bitterness to resound in your heart, it will come up. If you are allowing malice to resound in your heart, it will come up. If you are allowing falsehood and shouting and slander and anger and wrath, if you are allowing these things to fester in your heart, they will come up. And Paul says in this passage of scripture, under the authority of Christ Jesus, because we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, our hearts are no longer a cesspool of wickedness and vile immorality. They are now a wellspring of life and of joy, and it must be a change. Man, you start looking at the heart, and you start looking at this changed heart, where he says, hey, put, put it all away. Put, put this, remember, remember last week, we talked about how we, we take that part of our wardrobe off and we've got to put something new on. Put all this away and instead address yourself with the joy of the Lord, the grace of God, the power of Christ in salvation and how it relates to all that you are. To the heart's the center of your life. And we, we use these terms, put your heart into it. Give it all your heart. Because we understand as Westerners that that's kind of the center of who we are is the heart. We talk about giving our heart to Christ. Well, if you've given your heart to Christ, where's the bitterness? Where's the slander? Where's the anger? Where's the wrath? If we've given our heart to Christ, 
There's this transformation that starts here and, and it bleeds out. That's why the gospel is so awesome. If we've got the gospel driven in deep here, it will naturally come out everywhere else. It will, it will naturally come out everywhere else. If the gospel is deep in our heart, then it filters through our mind, out of our mouths, out of our hands, out of our feet. As we reach into lives of broken, as we reach into those that need to know the grace of God, Paul says here, you're going to put these things away. Guess what? How, 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 how much time do you have for anger, wrath, bitterness, and all this slander and everything if you're continually speaking of the grace of God? And I'm not talking about like speaking of the grace of God the way a lot of church people do. We talk about it in gossiping ways. We talk about, oh, you know, so-and-so, you, know, you don't know what she's got going on. I'm just, I'm just telling you this so that we can pray about it. But you never get to the prayer. Well, you know, he's been doing this right here. And, and, and I just want you to know because, well, I've, I know you have a relationship with him. And I think you have the ability to, to kind of speak to his need. But that's not what you're doing. Rather than, hey, let's come together and let's pull the cross of Jesus Christ and plant it right here in the depths of our chest and our hearts so that we together can proclaim his glory, his excellency through our heart, through our mouth, through our management, through our emotions and through our motives. The gospel changes. The gospel transforms. It gives us the ability to stand firm on who Christ is and live as Christ is directed. So where do you need to change? Where, where do you need to change? Is it in your motive? Is it in the way you allow emotion to control you? Maybe the change comes with just better management of what God's given you. You say, man, I don't know how to do that. Let's talk about it. We'll sit down. I, I don't have it all figured out, but I'd love to help you. Maybe your mouth, but definitely your heart.